about a week and a half ago, we started talking about spiritual warfare. And we were speaking about it on Wednesday nights. And it dawned on me last Wednesday night that we need to talk about this on Sundays. Because I just think that this is such an important topic. This is so critical. And it, I think that our, so many Christians are ignorant or ill-advised about warfare and what it is and what it is not. But first of all, I just want to review two parts that we've already spoken about. And if you've missed these two parts, I want to just get you up to speed. Part one, we spoke at a Wednesday night about a week and a half ago. And we spoke about Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, where it talks about the Egyptians are moving on to the Hebrews that have been just released from Egypt. And the Hebrews are pressed against the Red Sea. And they cannot go forward and they cannot go anywhere else. If you look at the geography of that, they were trapped. And as the, the Egyptians are on their way to just finish off these people that had just been, that had just been um, instruments of just incredible terror and suffering for Egypt, they were, their doom was impending. And what does God say? God says to them four things. And I'm just going re- to review these really quick. Fear not. Fear not. This is, where, this is where spiritual warfare begins. Fear not. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a different message than maybe you've heard in the past. Maybe you've heard it this, put this way. First of all, God says in the second book of the Bible, in one of the most intense, impending battles, he says, fear not. Number two, he says, stand still. Stand still. Stand still. Number three, you're going to see the deliverance of the Lord. You're going to see the deliverance of the Lord. And number four, I like this. You're not going to see these Egyptians ever again. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Part two of what we spoke about was understanding the devil's devices. And this was last Sunday. And this is uh, verse 10 really kind of gives us the understanding of what we spoke about our position. This is our position in warfare, what we spoke about a week and a half ago. We started with our position. Whenever we talk about spiritual warfare, we have to start with our position, our position in Jesus Christ. Number two, the, the second part that we spoke on was understanding the, devi- the devil's devices, devices, his strategies, his schemes, his, his intent, what he tries to do. And this is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. This is the second verse that we read this morning. And we said three things last Sunday that I want to remind us of. Number one, every temptation is what? Do you remember what it was? This is a pop quiz. (laughs) Every temptation to sin is at its root a temptation to disbelieve the gospel or the grace of God. It's a temptation to believe that God is not good and that 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 God is not gracious. And that is a direct onslaught against the against the gospel. Where do we see this happen the first time? Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. The, and this, by the way, the devil's strategies have not changed. He'll come to you and say, God is not good, he's not gracious, and he's withholding something from you, and you are, you are, God is neglecting you. Number two, the second thing that we said last week was the law of sin and death is like the law of gravity. It demands that you obey your desires to feed the void inside of you or 
suffer the consequences of loneliness, rejection, depression, or neglect. And the third thing that we said last week, which was the resolution to that, surrender to the goodness of God. Surrender to the grace of God. Surrender. Take out a white flag. Do it physically if you have to do it, and just wave it to the grace of God. Say, God, I surrender to your grace, your goodness. I am a guilty creature. I'm a creature that is filled with sin and shame and guilt and fear and loneliness and the fear of neglect and the judgment that I'm going to be left alone if I don't give in to this desire. I surrender to the, the, the grace of God. And when I do, that means that something, I'm surrendering to something. And get this, this is what we said last week. I'm surrendering to something that is so much better than what this world could ever give us. I'm surrendering to the grace of God. How many of you have done that in your life? Surrendered to the grace of God. When you had a proposition that was very pleasing to the flesh, you surrendered to the grace of God, and then you realized, oh my gosh, God had something better for me than I could have ever imagined. How many of you have been in that situation? Mm-hmm. I, I think everybody could raise their hands like, I'm so glad I didn't go for door number one. <laughs> I went for door number two that had the word the grace and the goodness of God on it. And so that brings us to today's message about spiritual warfare. And there's three things I want to say this morning. I'd like to give the outline, if I can, of my message at the beginning so that you can just follow the journey of the message. Kind of helps me keep on track. Number one, who do we fight? What is our, who is the who? In Romans chapter 8, it says that who shall lay any charge against God's elect? Can I get some water? Sorry. Who? Who is, who is the who we fight? Number two, what we fight, what we fight. And it's really important that we understand what we are fighting. And I think that these three points are going to be a little bit uh, misleading because later on we're going to find out that it's really God that's doing the fighting. And then number three, how do we fight? How do we fight who we are fighting? How do we fight who we are fighting? Sound pretty simple? Yes. I like simplicity because it Amen. keeps me get it from getting confused. <laughs> In Africa or in Latin America or Asia, most places in the world, the idea of spiritual warfare, which is a conflict of good versus evil, is not an unusual concept. Many people in many parts of the world think it really helps them to make sense of reality. Having an idea that I live in a war between two forces. Many people, many people understand this in the world and they understand it's funny that in the United States or in the West, we have a hard time understanding that. So number one, who do we fight? Who is the who? And Ephesians 6 verse 12 really does a great job defining this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And I think that we have to always remember that, that my wife, my husband, my kids, uh, my coworkers, my neighbor whose dog barks all night, or the guy down the street who's shooting his semi-automatic at 12 o'clock at night, that actually is someone in my neighborhood. <laughs> this is Texas. It's not my enemy. They are not my enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. I wish I had time to go into the Greek, what each of those ranks are. Maybe we will in the future. But against spiritual forces of evil. Now, when Paul says this, he's not saying that we don't wrestle with evil in flesh and blood. He doesn't mean that evil doesn't exist 
in people. It does. In the West, the modern Western world, we have, a tr- we have trouble with that because modern Western mindset is that everything, and get this, has an actual cause and therefore everything has a scientific or psychological explanation. And if everything is an actual cause and a scientific explanation, if that's true, then that means that crime, violence, social trouble, greed, racism, uh, war, and cruelty, all of these things must have a natural cause. But they do not. Do we get that? They do not. I have to tell you, sometimes I get wrapped up in the natural causes of things. And I, and I lose sight of the, of the spiritual battle. They do not. Number two, what do we fight? What are we fighting? Sometimes we quote here, or I'll quote people that are not even born again. And why do I do that? Because what it does is it tells me, it tells us, the massive hole that is in their philosophy that only the gospel can fit in. And so I'm not backing what these guys say, but it's just interesting for me to hear an unsaved secular scholar from Columbia University say this. His name is Angelo Andrew Del Blanco, and he says this. A golf, and he wrote a book. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And we know that Satan has not died, but that was the title of his book. Listen to what he says in the first line of his book. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We've jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like the word, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it is because it implies, it implies this, value judgments, moral absolutes. So what do we do? We use medical terms, he says. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology, and we don't want to use words that imply moral terminology. Big paragraph there. I'm sorry if it went over your head. Let me just say it this way. That in the world that we live in today, people are afraid to say that things have moral or even, let's go deeper than moral, spiritual implications. And we are afraid to say that because we're afraid that we're going to isolate people. And we live in a society today that does not want anybody to lose, that does not want anybody to be on the outside, but it's very inclusive. And that's to our detriment And so what happens here is this, and I'm just drawing a picture. We're going to have several messages in this series. So if I'm not covering everything here this morning, don't feel like um, I'm missing something. Just come back next week. The world historically misdiagnoses the true origin of the problem of the struggle in our families, in our schools, in our workplace, and in the media. Anybody watching the media lately? (laughs) It's a war. And there's just, I think, four reasons for that. Number one, one of the things that we used to say historically before World War II, anybody here a historian that likes history? Okay, anybody that reads history? Okay, you're going to understand uh, some of the teens here like history. You're going to understand what I'm saying here. One of the things that we used to say before World War II was that racism and violence come from a lack of education and a lack of civilized culture. Okay? And then we had World War II. 
which presented to us the final solution and the Holocaust, that death camps were the answer. And perhaps, and perhaps in some of the most educated and most cultured countries in Europe at the time were promoting this idea that this was the answer, that we were to eradicate the Jewish people. Number three, then we had Marxism. And Marxism, communism says, by the way, it's just fascinating to me when I have conversations today with young people that they don't even know what communism is. And they don't know what Marxism is. And I want to say, if you're a young person here, if you're a teen, um, it, it, it's, it's rearing its ugly head. My wife and I were missionaries in communist country. Sean was a missionary in a communist country. Um, communism is really a destructive force. And the truth is, is that not everybody gets to share everything. The truth is, is that it's just a select elite few that are running the program on the top of a pyramid are controlling it all. Marxism came and says that the reason for all the problems that we have in the world, the conflicts, the struggle, socially and, 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 and even spiritually and even materially, was not psychological and it wasn't educational and it wasn't a social problem. But we have to put all of these, we have to take all the means of production, take all the industry out of the hands of people and put it in the hands of a few elite few that know better than everybody else. And that was what communism was. And now communism has been thrown into the trash can. Today, today we have corporations that are out of control, that have no accountability to the law, and that do what they want through highly active lobbyists in Congress. Okay, that's enough of politics and history. Let's go to the meat of the message. The point is, is that we as people naturally cannot explain what the problem is. We don't dare to because we would rather speak of a more acceptable, tangible, manageable way to manage our problems and call it psychological problems or mental problems or an economic problem that they just need more money or they need more programs. The Bible does not have that problem. I love the Bible. I just, I love the Bible because you and I could, we could just turn off our TVs. I don't suggest you do this, but you could. Shut off your TV, never watch it again and have your Bible open and you could know more about what's happening today than what the media is telling you. Okay? It's amazing, isn't it? You and I could be more in tune with what's happening in the world today with the mind of God than what the media is telling us. And sometimes when I read news, and I like to read the news, I like to follow. I, 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 I don't subscribe. I, I follow RSS feeds because you can control those and there's no advertisements on them. And I like to read about them, what's going on, what's happening in the Middle East. And as I read, I'm thinking, I knew this. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this because the Bible tells me so. Yet, and I, just, I don't want to say that psychological and you know, factors in society can't aggravate. I don't want to say that they can't aggravate and shape people's self-centeredness or self-absorption or self-delusion. These factors don't create, and get this, these factors, society does not create evil. This is a major point I want to make in the message here. I'm not going to be speaking really long here this morning because we have communion coming up. I want to get us out the door in a, in a timely fashion. Society does not create evil. People are not creating evil. And I think that sometimes we look at history and we say, that's an evil person. 
or that person has created so much evil in their country. We look at some countries that are really kind of impacted by um, just grievous political situations, and we say, that man has created so much evil in that country. But that's not the case. Where does evil come from? This is not today's message, but we're going to talk about it. There's three kinds of evil in the Greek, and we'll talk about this later at another time. Where does, where does evil come from? Does it come from God? Does, has God allowed evil to come out? Has God created evil in some way? Has God, has God in some way been complicit to evil by doing nothing or the appearance of doing nothing? Evil came from the heart and the will and the mind of Lucifer. When he said, I will five times against God, that is where evil was born. That rebellion was born. It was born, it was invented, it was a system and an image of rebellion against God. And it came from Lucifer. Thomas Brooks wrote a book in the 1600s. He was a peer of Richard Baxter. They were Puritans. And he wrote this book, I just discovered it this week, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he says there's two basic categories of lies. And when we talk about spiritual warfare, we have to understand that warfare, that, that evil has come from Lucifer. And what is Lucifer's campaign? His, his campaign, Jesus said it very well. He said it precisely that the devil is the father of what? Lies. lies. <laughs> Every time he speaks, lies are coming out of his mouth. And, he, and the devil says, I am not. God says, I am. Here I am. Wisdom cries in the streets in the book of Proverbs. There's no esoteric, elitist type of knowledge that we would find in Gnostic movements today. God is, he is here, on, he, is, he is in our midst. He is very alive and very well, as Francis Schaeffer has said in the past in his book. Satan says, I am not. I don't exist. And this is the base of a lot of satanic religions. Lucifer says, I do not exist. Or Satan does not. Satan says, I do not exist. And he has two lies that he lies to you and I. I was thinking about Josh's testimony, and I just was so inspired by that. And I just think that this just goes so well with what we're talking about today. Two lies, basic lies that he tells the believer. Now, listen to this, and I, I want you to get this. This is really great, and I think it's fresh. That when the devil lies to you, and he starts lying to you, by the way, before you're born, right? There's a prenatal attack on every fetus where the devil begins to lie to the mother, where the mother starts believing a lie, and that affects the fetus. And the day that we're born, we, we, we just begin to believe and to receive lies from the devil. And these lies, if we believe them and we don't confront them with the truth of the new creation of who we are in Christ, these lies, what do they create? They create a false self, okay? A false self-image, a, 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 an untrue image of who we are. Now, here's, here's an example, and I use this a lot. When we were in Ukraine, we had a team member, uh, a, a pastor and his wife, uh, came over, and they were working with us. And his wife uh, is just hilarious. She's got such a great sense of humor. We, together as a team, we would laugh a lot, and it was just, we laughed and laughed, and she was just so funny. She'd just crack us up all the time. And she said to my wife and I one time, you know, when I was a, a young girl, I believed about myself that I was boring, that I was not humorous, and that I was not interesting, and nobody wanted to hang around me. 
I thought, what a lie that is. That's such a lie, isn't it? It's such a lie because the devil begins to lie to us because he does not want you to discover who you are in Christ. Amen. He does not want you and I to understand who we are because if we understood who we really are, though we see through a glass darkly today, the devil would be in so much trouble. And this is the main campaign. The devil, and we've said this before, the devil attacks you to God, right? He's always accusing. This is the word Satan, accuser. The devil is accusing. The devil accuses Josh to God, right? We see this in the Bible. He accuses every one of us to God. He uses our past. He uses our present. He uses everything that's going on. He uses half-lies, and he, he accuses us to God. And God says, what does God say? God say, just change his garment like he did with Joshua the high priest. Change his garment. And then guess what happens? The devil will also try to accuse God to you. God will, uh, Satan will try to take God and portray him to you in an evil way. Absolutely. And we believe this in, in an unconscious way. I have a bit of a scratchy throat, excuse me. So that we would believe without defining these, without filtering these vain imaginations that the Bible talks about, because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning this, we can't fight the devil in our own energy, but they are spiritual through the pulling down of, and these, these are big King James words that just mean that our battle, and I'm getting ahead of myself, is not, our battle is not with flesh and blood, and it's not carnal, but it's a spiritual battle. And so the devil, what he does, he does two things. He lies to us, so that we begin to believe a lie that we are wounded. See, the devil will try, and I think everyone in this room is going to be able to identify with this. The devil will try to wound you at a very young age. In a very, in a very, you know, in an age where, doesn't the devil stink? <laughs> what a loser. I just can't wait to see him get booted into the, the, the lake of fire. The Bible says that we will be judging angels. And I kind of think that this, and it says, Paul says that to, to the, the Corinthians. That I don't know, this is just my theory. I don't know if it's theologically correct, but if we're judging angels, maybe we get to boot the demons that, that were assigned to us from the devil, boot them into hell ourselves. You know, just drop kick them into, into, the, into the lake of fire. I hope we get to do that. That would be so cool. But he creates a false self, and this false self is an identity that we build on the foundation of a lie. You're not popular, you're not funny, you're not interesting, nobody wants to hang out with you. So, we become introverted, we become, we become this, we become that, we become wounded. And so the devil wants to attack us and wound us at a very young age, so that when that wound happens at a very young age, and, and this is Proverbs chapter 18, the words of a tailbearer. Tail, who's the tailbearer? The tailbearer of all tailbearers? The devil. The liar. The wounds of a liar go deep, and they go deep into the emotions and they hurt the emotions. And so the devil wants to wound us at a very young age so that when that wound happens, that we are so wounded, now get this, that we create these, what, we, what I've heard explained, vows. Vows are something that, or self-defense mechanisms, where we just say, I've been, I don't know if you've been seriously injured before. I had a broken collarbone, and every time somebody squeezes that, even though it's, it's not, it's not going to break again, my other collarbone will break first because this is titanium now. But whenever they squeeze that or whenever they hit me hard on that, um, I, I kind of like, I'm a little bit like I, I, I recoil because of, of I don't want to be, I don't want to experience that wound again. 
This happens on a deeper level in a person's soul that we kind of recoil and we want to protect ourselves. We create these vows or these promises that we are never going to be hurt that way again. So we create this, we create this wall or like just create this vow that this is never going to ever happen in my life again. And guess what? Most of us don't even know what those, that is. We don't need to go into morbid introspection to try to figure that out. But most of us don't even know what that is. And we create these vows. We create these promises that I'm, and, and these promises, they go into our subjective mind. And I'm sorry I'm being so psychological here, but I want us to understand that, that we create these vows. And what happens? Out of these vows, we, we create a false self, a lie. You know what the devil, when the devil says, you know what? If these people really knew who you were, they, they would not welcome you in, in their church. Can I tell you something? That's not true. <laughs> it is not true. None of us, including myself, stand here as people that have arrived. I don't stand here preaching to you because I've arrived to some spiritual level that I can get up and teach everybody. I think I'm just a chief of sinners, and God's grace is just amazing that I can, that I can be the, the instrument of it, of it. That's called a false self when we, be, when we begin to believe a lie that's not true about it. And when, when, when someone says, hey, if you ever knew, if you really knew what that person had done, who that person really is. Big, fat lie. Amen. Have you ever said that? If these people knew what I did this week, who I really am, huge lie, massive wrong, big X. Just this, this is not true. That is not who you are. Where's the biblical reference for that? Romans chapter 7. I am not my what? Sin. That's what Paul said. Five-star general in the kingdom of God, writing in the New Testament. I am not my sin. I'm going to move on here. False self. So the temptation, there's two things. Temptation and accusation. This false self. We're creating this, where the devil's feeding us lies, and we're creating this false self. That's why sometimes people, you know, sometimes the big, large, and in charge individual comes into the room. Guess what? They're just a scared, wounded little kid inside because of their, that's their false self. That's not who they are in Christ. Temptation, two things. Temptation essentially gets you to have a high view of yourself, too high, so that you go and do things that miss the mark of your, who you are in Christ. What does that do? It causes us to pretend. We're saying, actually, I'm not that bad. And we get into comparative righteousness. You know what comparative righteousness is? It's the righteousness that's based on somebody else's failure. Oh, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like Wesley. <laughs> I'm not like Sean. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. These guys are righteous guys. I'm not like so-and-so, you know. That's comparative righteousness, and that, that's Phariseeism. Accusation is the second tool. The devil's way of trying to get us to have such a low self-image of ourselves that we hate ourselves, that we, live, that we go into self-loathing. What does that do? It causes us to what? Perform. It's when we, when we think this way. Jesus has done so much for you. What are you doing for him? <laughs> that's like, that is performance, and that is not, that's an accusation. And it's not according to our true self, who we are in Christ. Thomas Brooks, in his book, he kind of breaks these down into a few, into different types of temptations. I just want to give you a few of these. Number one, devil shows you the bait, but he hides the hook. He, he hides the hook, which means he gets you into look at, at the devil gets you to look at the short-term pleasures 
but what would happen if I do this and see the long-term results? I think that that takes the punch out of temptation. By getting us to rationalize sin is virtue. What does that mean? It means this. It means that I'm not really greedy. I'm just thrifty. So I was, I was driving the other day. I was going down to pick up um, Chris Johnson. I was going to take him to the airport. And uh, I, had a, I was supposed to meet him at 4 o'clock. And I had a 4.30 up in, in, in Woodlands. And so I'm already running late. So I'm driving what I call proactively. In reality, it's aggressive driving. And I'm driving like really fast. I'm like just thinking, you know, okay, I'm just one of many cars here. Nobody's, so I'm just driving, kind of switching lanes. I'm one of the, on the axis road heading towards, I think it's Loretta. And I'm driving like, you know, Sean knows how I drive. Drive like a Yankee. <laughs> And I'm driving, and then, but Chris's wife somehow is driving behind me, and I didn't know this until later. And, and uh, so I pick up Chris, and, and Amber texts Chris with these big, you know, eye, you know, the icon with the eyes popping out. And so I try to keep up with Pastor, but he's just could not keep up with him. And I was like, oh my gosh, my sin has found me out. And I thought, well, I was trying to be proactive driving to be on time. No, I was being aggressively driving because I was a poor planner. That's a good example of how we can rationalize. That's just a funny example, how we can rationalize sin as a virtue. Uh, Here's another way the devil tempts us. He shows us the sins of other Christian leaders saying, you know what? He did it too. Nobody's really that pure. Okay. Another way. By presuming on the mercy of God or making them bitter over suffering, saying that you've suffered so much, you deserve this pleasure. And that's why I think so many businessmen and people of power have these comfort affairs because they say people don't know how hard I work. They, another, way, another way is that they show Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. And so everybody's doing it. Why don't I just do it? That's just some temptations. A couple accusations is, is that... That, that I don't deserve to look at my Savior. By, by causing people to talk about Christians who obsess over their past sins. Does that give God glory for us to obsess and live in condemnation over past sins? I think that whenever Paul and great men of God in the Bible talked about their past, they spoke it about it in a way, I like how they were, they were, they were able to talk about it, but give glory to God's grace. Like Paul said, I was a persecutor of the church. And so many awesome examples. Let me just close with this. How do we fight? What is the weapons? What are the weapons of our warfare? Every one of us walk around every day with two factors, two things going on in our mind at the same time. Number one, this is going on in our mind every day. I am a sinner. In myself, I'm lost. That's that's just I'm a sinner, and I'm in myself, in my own energy, in my own life, I'm lost. If someone doesn't realize that, if someone's living on one of the two poles of I'm not that bad or I'm trying to be better, then we are living in, in some kind of fantasy, fantasy land. We are, that is, that's a fact that is, is that I'm a sinner and I'm lost. Number two, my sin is so great that nothing else less the blood and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God could save me. These are these two things going on in our mind that, that, that um, I'm so lost. In Romans chapter 7, it says this, O wretched man that I am. 
And that, sometimes when we look at that chapter, we're thinking, oh, that was just a season in Paul's life, and then he's not always. No, I think this was something that was going on in Paul's mind every day. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? I like how he said that, because he was so secure in the grace of God, so secure in the love of God, so secure in the mercy of God, that he could cry out in his brokenness to God without living in some kind of condemnation. I think that sometimes we don't confess sin because we just feel like God's going to beat us up or that God's so disappointed with us or that we are disappointed with ourselves. No, confess, run to that throne of grace in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where it says that we may find grace in the time of need. Run to it, run to it. Be like the prodigal son and run to the father. Run to it. Because there is no condemnation there. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, one of the greatest verses of the Bible. This is our declaration of independence. This is our constitution. This is the articles of our freedom in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. There is now, therefore, now, present tense, today, this moment, in this room, no matter what happened to you yesterday or what happened to you on the ride in and whatever was going on in your life last night, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then some of the translators add those a few verses after that, or a, a few words after that, because some translations put the period right after that. Most translations, most, most reliable manuscripts in the Greek put a period there. There's therefore now no condemnation in Christ, period. There's no, there's no condemnation. And, and there's no need for us to be living in a false self. George Orwell said this in his book, 1984. He said this. I heard this this week, and I thought... This guy wrote that. He had no idea what he was saying, but it's so true. He said this, he who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. Now, who is that he he's talking about for us? Who controls our past? Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Jesus paid for our past. He paid for our sins. He paid for all of that. He is control. All of our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Isn't that awesome? Excuse me. Our life is not a life of self-behavioral modification. Church is not about looking good, saying the right thing. Church is about coming together around the gospel of the grace of God with people that are saved, that are sinners saved by grace and, and rejoicing in their Savior that there is therefore now no condemnation. Because who controls our past? Satan doesn't control the past. There is this type of thinking that some, some people, I don't know, some people, maybe many of us in this room, they're waiting for that day to come when some stranger sits down with them in a cafe and slides them over a, a yellow manila envelope that has photographs in there. <laughs> and they're, they're waiting for some ransom blackmail to go on. The devil does not control our past. The devil does not control our past. Amen? Amen. Christ has, has, has died, buried our sins, and rose from the dead. What is the remedy? And I'm going to close with this. Is this. Is that... Our remedy is to look upon all our sins as charged to the account of Christ. That he was wounded. I love these, I love these words. He was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions are, is sin in the mind. He was bruised for our iniquities, sins in the emotions. And a chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes were healed. You know what that healing is talking about? Deep inner healing. That everything that causes shame in your life, everything that causes embarrassment in your life, everything that causes you to step back and not step out in faith in your life is something that is, 
that is like the devil's tool that has been conquered at the cross, that has been defeated at Calvary, and that all of our sins have been charged to the account of Christ. I heard a story this week about a woman who owed a lot of money, a husband, and her, and her husband had divorced her, and, and she was living on her own, and she had, no, she had no means to pay the bills. The bill collectors came to her door and said, you owe us this money, and she said, charge it to my husband's account. And legally, she could do that because of the arrangements of the divorce. In some interesting, small way, that is the way it is with Christ. Christ has not divorced us. But all of our sins and all of our debt that we owed to God and that we owe to society or that we owe to our family because we've wronged them have been charged off to Christ's account. So that's remedy number one. Number two, I want to say this. I want to challenge you here, okay? I want to challenge you. Confront your false self. Just confront it. When people come to you and they confront your false self and, and call you and I out and say, you know what? That's not who you are. That's not who you are. When someone that is intimate in our life, a friend or our, our, our mate or someone that's a godly person in our life, calls us out and says, you know something? You've been living in a false concept and that's not who you are. And I'm telling you this because I love you and your true self is a brand new creature in Christ. And this is a false self that you're living in. And I don't want you to live in that. This is what our ministry here in Evergrace is, is that we are preaching grace. We are preaching a new creation. We're confronting people that live sometimes, all of us that live in a false self that's based on something that we built to protect us from the pain again. And if we need to, and again, I just love Josh's humility just... He's our example this morning. Uh, he, he's just kind of accountable. And, and you know, guess what? Every one of us, there's a time in our life when we need to sit down with someone and say, you know what? I'm struggling with this, and it's going to take me out. I just need your prayer, and I need your encouragement. I just need, I need you to reflect to me who I am in Christ. Get accountable to someone. And number three, the strategy of Satan's temptation and accusation is desire. I'm going to finish with this, Desire. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with desire? It is not us fighting the desire, but it is us falling in love. And if there's a one thing that you remember about this message, remember this. When you and I see the Christ in the Gospels, loving, healing, preaching, pouring out his life for people, when we see that Jesus in the Gospels, we fall in love with him again. And when we discover the grace... And sometimes, you know, we preach grace here. And sometimes the attack that we get as grace preachers is, is that, oh, we all believe grace. Everybody's going to go out and live in sin. No, that's not true. True grace does not allow us to go into sin. It keeps us. It guards us. It chastises us. It encourages us. It leads us because grace is responsible. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And when we live in this, when we, when we live in the new image of who Jesus is and we look at him in the Bible... And we see him, and we see him in John chapter 8 to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. We fall in love with Jesus again. Yes. We fall in love with him, and something happens, a new desire. And guess what? If this doesn't happen to you overnight, don't condemn yourself. It's going to take all of your life probably, most likely, unless you're a very unique, incredible person. And I'd like to meet you if that's the case. It's going to take all of our lives a new desire. Revival occurs... When those who think that they already know the gospel. Revival occurs when those that think that they know the grace of God. Discover again. That they really don't know it. As it really is. Grow deep in grace. That's what, Paul, that's what Peter said in his closing words. Right? 
grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fall in love with him. And the power of sin is going to fall away as you discover who you are in Christ with a new mission, a new passion, and a new future. Amen? Amen. 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 God, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for who we are in Jesus. We are a new creation in Christ. If you boil us down, I heard someone say this a couple weeks ago. If you boil me down, he said, and break me down to the most basic element as a Christian, and you break me down to the smallest piece and you analyze that, you're not going to find a rebel. You're going to find a sinner saved by grace. You're going to find a new creation that loves God. And Lord, we thank you that that's our reality today, that, we, that you've put in our hearts a love. Lord, we are broken. We are frail. We don't live in that. That's not our, that's not, that's not our, our final baseline. But we're new in Christ. So there's need, as, as Paul said in the Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, there's no confidence in the flesh. Lord, we have no confidence in our flesh today. Because all of that is, is just vanity. It's in the new creation. It's in the new creation. Lord, we ask you, I pray today, with every, every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want to ask you this question. Do you know if you're a new creation today? Uh, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Do you know that he died for you? And you didn't even know who he was. And before we could either qualify or disqualify ourselves, he, Jesus died for us. While we were yet sinners, enemies, and weak in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Jesus, for Romans 5. If you're here today, we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make a big thing. I just want you, between you and your private space, between you and God, just make that decision. Just say, Jesus... I know this is right. Maybe I've been religious. Maybe I haven't been religious. Maybe I've been just a rebel. But I'm just calling upon your name to be saved today. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and make me that new creation. And if you've already done that and you're struggling with something in your mind, maybe you're living in the, in the shame of the past. Maybe you're living in present temptation. Just confront that false self and say, and just say, you know what? I know where this road goes. I know where this road goes. And don't go down that road. It doesn't, it doesn't change. There's, it, it's not, it's, the end is always the same. Death and, and shame and regret. And so, Lord, we just want to pray today that you would strengthen each person here, each husband, each wife, each, each teenager that's in this room today. Strengthen us. That we would look to Jesus. That we would open our Bibles. That we would read a chapter out of the book of Mark that we'd read a chapter out of the book of Luke, that we would be astounded at the Messiah in the book of Matthew, or that you would speak to us about the deity of Christ in the book of John. Speak to us about the wondrous Jesus in whom are all the riches of wisdom. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.